Let's pray just a moment. Father, as we come to you, we thank you we can gather and look into your word tonight. Uh, thank you for LCA and for Alice's kindness to us in letting us meet here. We ask for your blessings on LCA in a time when it is desperately needed to teach young people, children, young adults, truth, real truth about who you are, how we were created and what we are to be to please God and to live a full and fruitful life that glorifies him. LCA is essential and other schools like it. So we pray for Alice, for each teacher and for the school tonight. Father, we also thank you we can begin to talk again about your people Israel. We're studying this and uh, we're dealing with a man who was key in not only turning Israel back to you, at least Judah, but a man who in his late teens actually began to turn the greatest nation at that point as far as power, military might, and just prosperity, the city-state of Babylon turned, he turned them by turning their ruler and king toward the Lord. Father, we ask you now to teach us as we go into the book of Daniel and uh, the second chapter. Let us understand what made this man a man that God was very pleased with, as the angel told Daniel. Let us not only learn about him, but let us, by God the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, Father, let us live his life to glorify and honor you. We ask this in the name of your Son, the one that has given us life, and power, and all of those things to please you and glorify you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Daniel 2 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We switch to Daniel because what is happening there lets us understand where we are today. It is the only book in the Old Testament that truly takes us to the end of time. It is, in a sense, an overview of what will be detailed in the Revelation. We had the Revelation first. I know we went backwards on this, but Daniel is a terrific, terrific book. Now, we are not doing anything on the uh, apologetics of Daniel, that is, how we know it is the Word of God. Let me simply say that Daniel, and if you would like to do it sometime, I'll get a vote from the group after we finish this, if you'd like to go through it. We can look at Daniel as, a, as students who are wanting to know why do we believe this is the Word of God, and it is. Uh, the book of Daniel is the most maligned book in the Bible. I now, you say, well, I've not really run into that. Go to a university and take ancient history, and you will find it. I mentioned last week about, that, or two weeks ago, about SMU <clears throat> teaching over there. They had just been told that their freshman ancient history, Bible history class, that Daniel was not written in the 5th century B.C., but really written in the second century BC after all the things he predicts had happened they just were making it look like prophecy and I want to say that is so much garbage and uh, you can really deal with this and if you'd like to sometime do that we will do it today we though are going to go to the second chapter which brings us to a prayer it is at the middle or end of the chapter, but it brings us to a prayer, a prayer prayed by a young man who has just graduated from college. Mm -hmm. He went to Nebuchadnezzar University, graduated magna cum 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 cum, and was with his, his uh, three best friends. These were the faithful, fearsome, fired up foursome, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who later got the name. Daniel never had it, well, they had it chained to Belshazzar, but he never used it. But they are also called Shadrach, the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At any rate, 
we come to them in the second chapter, and it is the year they graduate. The third year, if you read in verse 1, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Literally, this verse in chapter 2, verse 1, says in the Hebrew text, I was reading it today, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream after dream after dream indicating he had the same dream every night. And you, it, 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 it is some dream. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, going back to Daniel, as I said, first Nebuchadnezzar, it says his, if you look at this, his second year, it was actually his third year. In the Babylonian uh, or counting of reigns, royal reigns by a king, they never counted the, the accession year, the year he became a king. They started the next one. This is not really just the second year. He had been ruling almost three years. And that tells us also that Daniel and his three friends had graduated because they had a three-year scholarship uh, by force uh, in, in Babylon. And they, of course, came from the land of Judah, Yehuda, and they were there to study. And as we will see, they studied all of the religions as well as the histories that the Babylonians taught. Now, the second thing, though, I want to say about this as we go into this, there is a prayer in here that I think is one of the greatest prayers ever prayed anywhere. And, of course, it is in God's Word. We find it in chapter 2, verse 19, and uh, it goes, start 219, it will go all the way through 12. I'm sorry, 22, I got the wrong page here. That that is going backwards. It goes from 19 to verse 23. And so this is a prayer. I want to read one line out of this prayer. I come back to this prayer often because it really hits us where we are. Daniel, it's said, verse 20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. And here's the verse. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And women too. He, they just always did the masculine. We'll go just that with verse 21 because it tells us that when we think of history and actually, and the future. History never repeats itself. Understand, we hear that statement. History, they'll do some of the same stupid things, but history is linear, not circular. And God is the one who runs the show. As one of our little kids, we were talking to them when I was pastoring over at Pack Saddle. Some of you were there. Uh, and a uh, little guy in class, he was six or seven, he says, you mean God is the boss, and that really is true. Who's the boss? And God is boss. He is now, and we see all of this happening. People are upset now, and we need to know that. We are, we are having trauma everywhere. And uh, we, we found that at Padre this time. Usually we talk to people long, and, but people were just, they were shook. And they're more shaken now than they were. And I talked to Keith, my son, who was a wasn't still in a sense as an intelligence officer and if, if you were going to get shaken up more talk to him and we may talk about that some night i'd like to have him in here and talk to us if we could pull it off anyway so they they we are we are in a time where we do not know what the history of this country is going to become but what we know who follow jesus christ who are his daughters and sons is that he is the boss. Everything that happens, he allows or he is glorified by. But it is all to his end that he be able to put on the throne God the Son to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to keep that in mind because I have no sense of how long this nation is going to flourish as it is. 
We're doing things right now in the area of sin and degradation that as far as I know, and I love ancient history, I know of no nation in ancient history that has ever done some of the things we are doing. At any rate, uh, we are in a sense in the same, we are not in a sense, we are in the same family as Daniel. And uh, so I, when we see things, Babylon was not a, not a place where they followed God. They had more gods in Babylon than people, literally. But it's, this account is the account of how God used Daniel and his friends to change a city-state and really change the world. Now, sadly, it was not a change that was permanent. The change is going to come in the life of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the way you say it with us, Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar, you have to go mm, like that in the middle. He was an amazing guy. And uh, he, in many ways, was probably the most talented warrior king we've ever seen in human history. But he also, as one commentator said, he was not a man who was given to self-control. He tended to blow up easily. But we're going to see him come to faith in God. And this young graduate, I sometimes title this study the graduate, is the one who will bring him there. And so if, as you study this, you become more like Daniel, you're in very good stead. And that is what I pray for myself and for you. Now, Daniel knew that already God shakes up nations. When he was taken captive in 605, he wasn't really taken captive, actually. Babylon took over uh, Israel, Judah, and 605, and a lot of other things. Nebuchadnezzar, had won two huge battles, uh, well, really three. One in 612, he had uh, led the Babylonians against the Ninevites, Nineveh. They were the ruling power. But in 612, Nebuchadnezzar went to Nineveh. And I want to tell you, it was like we used to say in Georgia, a fort over a rooster. I mean, he put them down. Now they still wanted to try to get to him, which was sort of stupid. In 609, he also defeats the, uh, the Syrians and the, and the Egyptians who also wanted to beat Babylon. But finally in 605, the game was over because there's a third huge battle called the Battle of Carchemish. That battle is recorded in detail in the Bible in the prophecy of Jeremiah. I will say some things, and I'll give you that scripture at another time. We have a better place to put it, but I want you to know that for all that he did, and that he won, and they, they became the nation in the world, they were also in their last years. Now, Babylon had existed as a nation state since the time of Father Abraham. And Abraham, remember, is... 2025, we see him coming to the land from the bottom of the Fertile Crescent, Ur of the Castine. You go, and I'll bring a map back and show you that. You go all the way around and come to Judah. Uh, Babel, Ur is very close to Babylon, not very far at all. But it, and it was also a nation that was uh, Babylon that was uh, doing very well. We call it the first Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadrezzar is the second great king in the second Babylonian Empire. His father was called uh, Nebo-Pelasser. And he took over for father in 609. This is Nebuchadnezzar. When he took over, he uh, did defeat, he'd already defeated as a general the Ninevites, or Assyria and Nineveh. And when he took over in 609, he defeated the Egyptians and the Syrians in a small battle. Then in 605, the, really the year after Daniel went to college, he took the graduates from Judah in 
6. Daniel goes to college in 606, as it were. In 605, Nebuchadrezzar has the great battle of Carchemish, which I said is in the book of Daniel. And in that battle, he defeated for good the uh, Egyptians and what was left of the Assyrians. Now, if you studied, uh, some, of, some of you were there when we were dealing with Josiah the king. Remember the last good king of Judah? Well, Josiah died in 609, and as soon as he died, what God had said was going to happen, Judah went into the trash heap, and they, they were through. And so this is what, where we're looking at. He, he uh, defeated uh, not only everybody else in the Battle of Carchemish, the Egyptians tried again, the Assyrians, which had almost nothing left, tried again, but he beat them all. Not only that, but at that point, Israel, as it, Judah, as it were, ceased to be a viable nation. God said it would happen, and then Jeremiah tells us how many years they would, uh, that this would, uh, they would be uh, in this situation. Uh, that is, that they would, that uh, Babylon would. Uh, be ruling and uh, they would be in captivity. Now that was in 609. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 tells you how long that's going to be. He says, as for Babylon, you will be finally a desolation and you will exist no more. And that will be in 70 years. That's from 609 when our wonderful King Josiah died until 639 when the Jews went back from Judah, or back from Babylon to Judah because guess who took over after the Babylonians? Anybody tell me? Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian. That's right. And they're going to rule for a long time and we're not going to deal with them tonight. But at any rate that was Daniel's setting. He comes as a young man. He spends his whole life there. And as far as we know, he did not get to go back. But he got to go to a better place. If God ever says that you are a man well thought of or a woman well thought of in heaven, rejoice. An angel tells Daniel that. And we will see that. But let's go back to this. Again, as we take and look at this, we need to know what... God expects and what he does when a nation does not meet what he expects them to do. And that will finally, it happened to the ones that went down, it will finally happen to Babylon. And God in a sense shakes nations up. He brings destruction, he brings captivities, he brings bad things that are hard but also things that are very good. And so we are coming into the time when Babylon is rising and Judah is going into captivity. They take the young men who are sharp, very sharp, with other young men from all over the ancient world to come and be trained in Babylon so they may serve and the government of Babylon. But others are taking captivity. We don't find that. But we find from when Daniel went 606 down to really 602 to 698, others are taken. All of the other people in Judah or any other nation they took who could were skilled people, the, the upper class and middle class, they were all taken captive to Babylon. And they didn't get to go to Babylon University. They were in slavery. Eventually, they would, some would work themselves out. And so that was happening to Judah because God said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And he said, you are going to go down. It's not that I'm going to, unlike any other nation, God did not throw the Jewish people, the nation of Israel away. He said, you're going to go down, but he said, you'll be in captivity. And you can find this in Deuteronomy 32. He talks about how you'll be in captivity and you'll wish at night, you'll wish it was morning and in the morning, you wish it at night. And I'm going to scatter you through the world. But God always comes back to Israel to say one thing. I'm going to bring you back. And when I bring you back, it's going to be when the king comes. 
That makes Israel unique and, unique and different than any other nation in the world. And we'll be talking about that some. Now, let's get with the second chapter. What had happened, of course, in, Is in Judah was what happened to Israel earlier. They bought Frederick Nietzsche's loud claim about this uh, Western civilization. This was about 120 years ago that Frederick Nietzsche, who was a horrible atheist, uh, part of the movement toward communism and other things, he said, belief in the Christian God is no longer tenable. God firmly came to the place where the belief in anything Nietzsche said is no longer tenable, and he dealt with them. And so we have Daniel coming out of this, and a lot of the people, as soon as you say, well, Josiah was a good king, he died in 609, didn't they go, oh my goodness, no. They immediately, except for a remnant, went back to evil, worshiping the Baals and all of that right away. And God brought to pass what he said during the, remember, Nasa was Josiah's grandfather, and he was the worst king who ever lived who was converted at the end of his life. And you, you kind of say, Lord, that's not fair. He was really a bad guy. Lord says, that's what grace is all about, and it's for you and me. And so we have this point where they have come back, they've been beat up, and they, they've rejected their God, and God said, that's the reason you're going. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a unique person. And he, there's really, as I said, been no other ruler quite like him. He wasn't, he didn't believe in gods. He believed there were other gods, other than Babylonian gods. But he says all of the other gods, they're powerless and useless. The only gods that count are the gods of Babylon. Well, it takes all night just to name them all. So he picked six or eight. And if you look at the gates of Babylon, we mentioned this the first time, it had eight gates, and they're all named for Babylonian kings. The other thing they had to worship, the main, they had a lot of things that were given to worship, but they had a etamonanki or a ziggurat. Anybody know what a ziggurat is? Yeah, it's a pyramid. Actually, it's a step pyramid. They had one in Egypt, but it was different. The step pyramid had its chamber of burial inside. It was a burial chamber. The ziggurats for Babylon were a worship mountain. They were steps, and they had stairs going all the way to the top. The one in Babylon was in the fourth quarter of Babylon, so was the king's palace. And the priests, uh, the Chaldeans, all the priests and sorcerers, they had a whole cadre of religious people, would walk up those steps to the very top and offer sacrifices to the gods, and the gods would talk to them. At least that's what they had told Nebuchadnezzar. But we're going to see this time that religious people who don't know God lie a lot. And they're going to get themselves in heavy trouble because of this. And so let's begin with chapter 2. Verse 1, we don't, we're going to take all the time we need on this, but this is important material, and so we're done. Now, we uh, come to the time when, uh, as we said, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, really his third year, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Halan uh, uh, is, is the word for dream, but it was really, as I said, in verse 1, it was... He didn't have a lot of dreams. He had the same dream, the Hebrew text and the grammar. Same dream night after night. I got to dream this again. Now, I have a dream like that. I don't know if Phyllis Ann even knows this. I have been dreaming for the last 10 years that I'm back in New York pastoring Calvary Baptist Church. Phyllis Ann says, please no. <laughs> but I do. Now, we enjoyed our time there. They're great people. But, you know, he has this dream, and it, it's not a happy dream. It is, well, to say the least, a nightmare, and we'll come back to it. Now, at this point, uh, the uh, problem that Nebuchadnezzar has is that he's in God's crosshair. Now, I want us to think about that. Why does God do this? 
You know, there are a lot of, he had plenty of evil kings. You had Sargon II and just ruled Assyria. You had all these really bad guys, Pharaoh Nicole and all of these. But Nebuchadnezzar, by God's sovereign will, was chosen. He was chosen first to really discover the hard way that there aren't many gods. The one you've rejected is the only God. He's the boss. And he would find that out. Now, when we see this, we begin to understand that God, when he gets to someone and reaches someone, sometimes he has to do some dramatic things. If I had our son Keith here tonight, Keith became a believer, fairly young, uh, but he didn't really walk with the Lord. And he tells us this in his testimony. And uh, he said, you know, the Lord really had to get my attention. Well, sometimes he has to do it the hard way. He did it with Keith. He did it with, he blessed me. He brought Phyllis Ann into my life. And she was really serious about, I was a believer, but she was really serious about the Lord. And that made a huge difference. Thank you, dear. At any rate, Nebuchadnezzar is not about to think about God, but in this chapter, he starts having this dream. And this is the grace of God. That's why any time we are walking with the Lord and something really hard or horrible happens, you have to know God didn't make a mistake. There is a reason for this difficulty. It is a door that God wants to open for us so that we know him better, see him more clearly, as the Godspell musical said, love him more dearly, because as he brings difficult things, and we could all go through things we've had in our life and say, you know, I thank God for that now. At any rate, Nebuchadnezzar's having this bad dream. Well, when the king of Babylon, basically the ruler of the ancient world, can't sleep at night, and that was true. He, he you know, he, things were fine in the daylight, but many by time came, things got bad. And so he says, I need to know what this is about. And I love this section because you want to deal with false religion. This is a way to do it. Then the king, verse 2, gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers. By the way, these two groups are ones who all uh, express in words cells. Uh, the conjurers are really mumblers. They mumble cells. They just go on and keep talking, I think, for their much talking. The magicians would pronounce things and uh, sorcerers also pronounce things and they did magic signs but the ones we want to look at and they're listed last year are the Chaldeans or the Kasnim these men are astrologers and that becomes very important if you go back to ancient Babel Babel which Babylon is a growth out of that. That These were the magic people there. This is back in Genesis, and uh, we see that in chapter 11 of Genesis. They are the astrologers. They, the stars will tell you. Well, uh, that, that's what they did. And so the king, you know, he supported all these guys. And so he gives orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Kasdim to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Now we read that and we say, oh, big deal. They came and stood before the king. No, that is a really big deal. Two things about standing before the king. First, if you were able to stand before him and he wasn't upset with you, you were invited. You just didn't walk in and say, oh, king, I'd like to talk to you today. You got a moment? You didn't do that. If you did, they, they, you didn't get to say anything because they executed you. You just violated the king's presence. The second thing that they uh, were brought in his presence was to be given a death sentence. Some of them didn't get that far. But it's obvious that these had been invited, and he has a request. He says, you know, I can see what he's thinking. I've been supporting you, Yodos, for all this time. That's in his mind. Uh, to, to tell me what the gods say in all of this. And uh, now I want you to tell me what the dream is about. He says, to tell the king his dreams 
So they came in and stood before the king, and the same king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And when the king says his spirit is anxious and he rules the world, it's time to get with it. These guys weren't worried. Phil Sand and I, just a quick illustration on this, because these guys could interpret dreams. At least they claimed they could. In that time in the ancient world, we're at really, we, we are at 605 BC. Uh, dream interpretation was the big way to know the mind of God and what was going to happen. When Phil Sand and I start, first started going to Israel, they had just made a huge find. Not, not in Babylon, but not too far from Israel, up in Syria. There was this huge tell, and it was called Tel Mardik. And Tel Mardik, they dug on it some, and they thought it was another part of some of the great uh, Assyrian kingdom or some of the kingdoms they knew about. And uh, so nobody bought In fact, if you know who Lawrence of Arabia was, he was an archaeologist before he was a soldier. He dug on that tell. Well, in 1962, a group was digging on the tell from somewhere, and I think they were French archaeologists, and they hit the main library. And this library was not a small library for this huge tell and the other little tells around it. It was a library that had 17,000 clay tablets, which gave the history and everything, but it also, the main, the majority of these tablets was on how to interpret dreams. Phyllis Ann and I got to spend some time with the, the American archaeologist, who remember, who came over, and we met him in Egypt. He came over to be part, and he was going back to that place. He was from Michigan University. And he told us it was really fascinating. What they discovered, this was a whole new civilization of people we didn't even know about. We think we know everything. And it was not until 1962 they knew that. Well, what it brings to us is interpreting dreams was a big deal. And they claimed that these guys, you know, this is Babylon, sure, we can interpret that dream. Just tell us what the dream is, O King, and we got the word for you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, there, there, you know, there's a new king in town. He, he was a lot sharper than they were. Uh, the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious under, to understand the dream. Verse 4 is important. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in what? Aramaic. Aramaic. That's the other ancient language. In fact, it was became the ancient language of the Middle East. When we come to the Lord Jesus' time, the people did not speak Hebrew. The priests did. The Ravis did. They do it to each other because they read the Bible. In Hebrew. But they spoke Aramaic. Now, it's very much like Hebrew. But if you make the mistake in you know, that you, if you can read Hebrew, you can read Aramaic. You're really wrong. It is a whole other language. And this is where the book of Daniel changes to Aramaic. Now we have other books. Ezra has, has two, three chapters in Aramaic. We have in Jeremiah one verse in Aramaic. But in Daniel from 2.4 to 7.28, all Aramaic. Now why is that? Why do you, why do you think God would not put it all in good old Hebrew. Because he was living in Babylon. Huh? Because he was living in Babylon. Well, he was living in Babylon, but he could still, God could have, you know, just, I'll, Daniel translates it in Hebrew. Daniel could surely do that. He was a scholar. Why would God change language at this point? What's he trying to do? God doesn't try to do What is he doing? Well, Jesus is going to speak Aramaic later, right? right? It, that, you, when Jesus came, they said, that's right, he's just right. He's putting it in the language of the people of that time. God wants to get through to people. His great love is to bring salvation to the earth. And so that's part of the reason. Anyway, they're speaking here. And long live the king forever. Tell the dream to your servants. These are the Kasdim and the saucers and all these people. 
and we will declare the interpretation. That was a big mistake. <laughs> Listen to the king. The king will reply to the Chaldean or the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. And you know I mean it. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn. You will be literally in Aramaic. It says you will be limbed. And they did that the way you drew and quartered people in the Middle Ages in England. You tied a rope on one arm and tied a rope on the other arm, tied a rope around the neck, tied a rope to one leg, tied a rope to another leg, and you put, as it were, five horses and said, go! In all different directions and just tore him apart. They were limbed. He says, that's what we... And he wasn't kidding. This was limbed. And your houses shall be made rubbish heaps. That's a very nice term in Aramaic. Uh, translation of an Aramaic term. The Aramaic term, your houses will be public restrooms, is what they mean. So men, women. And he, but if you declare the dream, it's interpreted and it's interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, a very confident group of wise men and men of magic and all of this, supposed learning, all of a sudden went from great calm to great panic. Because they didn't wait. They didn't say, yeah, and your execution date's out here. You do it right then. I don't care if it's 2 in the morning. Take them out. Do it now. And so they, they come back to him. They answered a second time. Let the king tell the dream to his servants, for we will declare the interpretation. The king's smarter than they are. Then the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. That if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to repeat, to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, they're hung up. Remember the big ziggurat? This thing is made of seven levels. It's almost 800 feet high, great expense. They went up every day. Where have you been? I've been we've been up communing with the gods. And they told us this, and they told us. That's what they said we have in their literature. All of a sudden, he says, do it. And they say, we can't do that. Well, if the gods talk to you, you get up there and be talked to. They couldn't say that. They're in full panic at this point. They say, the Chaldeans, verse 10, answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, and as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this or any of any magi magician, conjurer, or Chaldean, or Chaldeans. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. Now all of a sudden, these guys are going to speak the word of honesty. Is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. They're not claiming they talk to gods anymore. They say, they're in heaven, and there are no gods here. That's a huge, first, you just blew your job. Secondly, you just confessed to the king that we've been lying to you the whole time. And as I said, as one commentator says, self-control was not Nebuchadnezzar's best gift. And so because of this the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. Now, we say, boy, was Daniel there and was Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra? No, they weren't there. They're wise men. They're, recent grand, they're wise men junior grade and they don't get asked to the big conflags and, 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 and sessions with the king. In fact, they've probably never seen the king because you only went in when you were asked. 
And you say, well, they're in good shape. No, they're not in good shape. They, they weren't invited to the big conference, but they were invited to the execution. He's going to get rid of all of them. Now, there's another reason for this. The father of Nebo Palas, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, was a king named Nebo Palaser. And we said this. He was the first king of, of ba the second Babylon. And all of these guys we know from the Babylonians like the Babylonians like all of these Chaldeans and uh, sorcerers. They were his buddies. They were the old school that advised the king. And I suspect down deep, Nebuchadnezzar, who was not given to uh, calmness when things didn't go his way, was looking for an excuse to get rid of these bunch and either do it himself or have a new team. And so he issues the order. But he's going to get rid of all of them because what we find is because of this, the king became angry. We read that. So verse 13, so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill him. That's kind of a discouraging outcome. Daniel's gone to school, he's graduated, and they're coming to get him. At this point, we're going to learn something about Daniel. When Daniel came to Babylon, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah came to Babylon, they were deluged with the religions of Babylon and all that they said and the ziggurat and the gates and, you know, the name for gods. But they had made a decision early in life. What was that decision? All God, one true God. One true God. You know, I cannot help but think two things. I would love to have met their parents. Probably they're dead. They died in the, in the fighting. The second thing, I suspect they were trained, and they had schools by this time that later be like they had in Jesus' time, that their education and their parents were both faithful to God and they trained. That's why this place is so important here. They're going to be kids who come through LCA and other Christian. My granddaughter goes to one in Sanitar, actually, and Bernie. But these kids are going to go through here, and they're going to trust God. Not everyone will, Alice will tell you that, but they're going to go through and trust God. And they are going to be his at remedy. And that's what we want to support. You know, one of the great excitements I have right now, my, our grandkids call us. And they, they, Daniel called me. He's Daniel's, he's moving with the Lord one of Keith's twins, our oldest son's twins. Grandma, I asked Grandpapa what Jerusalem means. Well, he's getting down to the nitty gritty. He wants to know what that word means. You've got young men who have been trained just like that. They are the forerunners of kids who follow the Lord in this day. And they're going to change the world. And you say, well, you know, I look around, I, I, I'm old now, what I like being, but boy, I really, I'm older than anybody in here, I think. And uh, you look at that, and uh, very, very young wife, but anyway, you look at this stuff and you go, what can I do? Well, I want to tell you, there are young people around that want to hear what you have to say. And if you are living for God, God will draw them to you. We're amazed at the number of calls we get from young people, young couples. It's amazing they want to come. Now, they don't come because I used to be the pastor of a huge church. They don't know that. They don't know what Northwood is. They want to come because they know we love God and they want to know about God. We are experiencing an awakening in this country among the young people. I don't know if it's going to save us. I pray it will. But it's going on, and Alice is having a big part of it, so thanks for having us. So these are four young people who graduated from great parents and something like LCA. And Daniel, at this point, shows how we handle things when it seems like the door was slammed in our face or we've fallen off a cliff. We read this. They came to look for Daniel and his friends. Let me see what time we got. I love this passage. I love getting in it. 
Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch. Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, he ran the secret service, but he also was head of the execution squad. And, but he's come to get them, and that's why he's there. And uh, he, uh, Daniel replied to, with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, and had gone both forth to slay, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now, I'm amazed at Arioch. I'd like to know what he, usually these people are not prone to listening to prisoners. But listen to what he says. He says to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is this decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. I can't help but think Daniel, who had already impressed the dean of the college, had also impressed this guy. You see, graciousness and tenaciousness impress people. He's not a, you know, Daniel's not a, a, a wimp. He isn't a soft-touch guy. He's strong as, you know, you know, he's strong as leather, but he's also a man who's gracious and tenacious. And so he asked him, and Arioch answers him. I, I often wondered if Arioch is in heaven. It could be. Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king. Now, you say nobody can come to the king unless they're called. That's true. Daniel did not go at this point personally. No king? Question. He did somebody, he got Arioch to get somebody we can be sure to go in and make a request. Uh, <clears throat> Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that the might that he might declare the interpretation to the team. Now, this is a good, because Arioch realizes, boy, if I find somebody who can do this, man, I, I, I maybe won't have to be the head executioner anymore. Maybe I'll be lifted up. Also, he, he may well have been positive toward Daniel. I think he was. And it also gives us what God is going to do to put Daniel where he wants him. Daniel's facing death. He trusts God. He asks this. And God not only delivers him but death, but he opens the door into life for a lot of people and glory. And so you see that he does that. So Daniel went in and requested. I do not think he did it personally, that he would give him time in order that he might receive the interpretation. He might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friend Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> now, I don't know that they were particularly against the wise men of Babylon, but they were thinking about they, most of them may have been destroyed already, or a lot of them, but they're thinking about helping him. But I, I, it surely helped the wise men. Anyway, they get this. And so this is what happens. The king allows Daniel time. Now that was the hand of God. If you study anything about Nebuchadnezzar, we have writings outside of the Bible. He was not given to being a kind person at this point. But he gives Daniel the time. And what happens at this point? What does Daniel do? Well, the first thing he does, he asks God for this, and we read, somebody read us verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Okay. The word mystery in the Old Testament is, same, is the same uh, word, or not same word, but the same me the interpretation as the meaning as the word in the New Testament. Mystery is not something well, who done it. We have to figure out who shot the king or whatever. A mystery is something that has not been revealed that God Himself alone reveals. And so the mystery is given to Daniel in a night vision. Now the uh, question is, why didn't God just give it to Nebuchadnezzar? What do you think? 
I mean, he would have saved, of course he wants to save Daniel, and we, we know that, but he could have just told Nebuchadnezzar and ended by saying, and by the way, Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah are my guys, so you take care of them. But he doesn't. He gives it to Daniel. Why? Because he's going to use Daniel. Got it. That's right. Daniel is going to change everything and his three friends. And they're going to change a lot of people. And they, God wants to reach the king, but he wants to reach a lot of other people. And now Daniel is going through an open door. Then Daniel, after this is seen, he's already received the interpretation. Then we have the prayer of Daniel. And we will, yeah, we can get through that. We, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed. He praises God and blesses his name. For olam va olam, forever and ever. For Sophia, I mean, belong to him. Wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics, removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. At this point, Daniel has the information. Now the question, of course, is uh, what is he going to do with it? He's going to, of course, be able to take it to the king. The king that was fried when he couldn't be told and said all the wise men are finished is now going to find that there is a God in heaven. It's only the beginning. But suddenly he is facing God who is really God and he has ever. Eventually he'll trust in God and then he'll get proud of himself and God is going to do something. What's he going to do? Turn into an animal. You know, yes, he's going to become an animal, right? <laughs> But at this point, we have it. Now, at this point, we are going to stop. We have 24. Daniel is going to go in, and he is going to give him the dream. This dream is important in ways that we cannot really imagine because the dream itself tells us the rest of history. You are in this dream. Okay? Okay.